0: Yeah, man, you're responsible for the sound on a lot of my favorite records. You know, all-time favorite
1: records. Uh,
0: Footprints I, I, Live. I, I, you know,
1: I, I suspect it's maybe the music that caught your attention.
0: Of course, it's more, the music more first, than... but then you you recognize something, and um, you know, especially first time I heard Footprints Live, I felt like I was on stage with with the band.
1: That was kind of my idea. Yeah. When are the best experiences in your life like this when you're performing music? It's when you're in the middle of performing, the magic is happening. That, now what's your perspective? You're sitting at the piano, but you've also got bass and drums and whatever else going on around you. I prefer that. I mean, um, I grew up as a professional musician myself. So I was used to playing on stage. And I actually started mixing that way. I put the mixing board on the stage Mm. and mixed while I was playing. So for me, it's all about the music and with the guys at this kind of level, all I'm really trying to do is just to expose everything they're doing as accurately as possible. And I take a little bit of liberty with trying to expose Maybe some harmonic progression or something that's happening in the music a little more than would naturally be perceived. Hmm. You know, if you know, if uh, there's some really just super beautiful bass line laying between something or harmony in the piano. Let's get that. Let's make sure everybody hears it, but not not to make it obvious. Just reveal it hmm. really clearly, because I think I have a pretty good sense for someone else's intention, how they're trying to lay that chord. Or that how that phrase is fitting for them, and sometimes it's magic for them. Let's expose the magic, man. Let's bring the magic out for everybody to, to clearly hear. You know
0: that requires a super fast ear on your part because Wayne's music is so fast. I don't know if how how much you you're involved in with bringing out uh, specific stuff when they're playing live. You know,
1: I, I do the same thing live. Yeah. Okay. But so I'm not I'm not listening and responding. Mhm. I'm f- trying to follow their feeling where each guy I mean it's in that in that case with uh, Wayne Shorter it's a quartet so you're not following an entire frigging orchestra right Yeah. Um uh, but you can you can sort of feel where they're coming from if a guy's laying back a little more or if a guy's putting out some more energy in something it's you know it also is happening in the sound naturally cuz they're doing that you know when Brian Blade makes a little explosion on the drums, it's kind of hard not to notice.
0: Absolutely, yeah.
1: You know, for me it's, but, but there's a little warning with Brian sometimes. He'll pop out of his, his drum stool like a jack-in-the-box, like a toy for the children, where they you <laughs> know, you wind it up and the head pops out. Yeah. Basically, Brian goes out of his seat like this, and when he comes down, something's gonna happen. Yeah, yeah. To, I often attribute it to a, a doppio Espresso. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah, that makes Kicking sense. And right yeah. after dinner, I'm like, "Okay, check it out. There goes the espresso. I'm waiting for the lemon cake sugar to hit him." <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, and working with you know guys at that level, what a frigging honor mm. for a guy who's really—I consider myself a musician. Yeah. Um, I happen to mix and, and and mix live concerts and records, but man, I do it like, as a musician. I think. Um, I'm really not overthinking it. Hmm. Um, maybe I'm overfeeling it.
0: Hmm. You know what? What does that mean? Overfeeling it?
1: I, well, I, first of all, I, I I get really involved. I take it very seriously. Um, I I can't even imagine mixing without faders under my fingers. So I need the faders because for me it's kind of like I I'm getting to work with the greatest mus some of the greatest musicians in the world. Um, and and now it's almost like they are my instrument. Mm. So I'm riding these faders all in relationship to each other constantly, certainly in a live concert. Um, I virtually never stop because there's always some room for improvement.
0: Yeah. There's
1: always some room or somebody's playing a little differently. You know, pianos are um, particularly touchy and uh, and not, you know it's a little easier to do some uh some reed instrument or a horn often you kind of leave it more in one place you might be changing level somewhat but piano for example and you being a pianist you totally understand um you get very different tonality when you're playing with your hands out towards the edges of the keyboard mm. or when you start to move your hands toward the center and get into a denser harmony mm. in the center of the piano so that's very hard to to pick up clearly in microphones. Mm. Um, Also, I'm sure you find it in the studio as well. There's a really nice, can be a really nice, warm, woody middle sound, but it's kind of often really hard to achieve. And it's hard to get clarity there in all of the harmony. And there's so much intricate harmony that can be going on. You know, um, I spent many years doing things with Herbie Hancock. I mean, are you kidding? What's going on at the quietest level? The absolutely very lowest of dynamic level it's equally important
0: mm.
1: it's something that's loud it's just yeah. soft it, but it's also important and it's all this really fine relationship um you know herbie's a, in my opinion just a total king of this absolutely but in here I've, I've been so fortunate to work with so many great you know jazz musicians it's really unbelievable mm. um, the first first jazz act i ever worked for was Wayne. this is ridiculous
0: how did you get that gig?
1: Well, I got it, The Wayne's agent called me. I'd been on the road with Paco de Lucia's group. Um, and actually the first Wayne tour I couldn't even begin because I was still finishing a, like a six week Paco tour. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's how I got in there. And uh, yeah, then then it just kind of went sideways from there because starting with Wayne, most ways to go or to go down. I think maybe my next gig was um, with Herbie and then well, Michael then Michael Brecker, you know, so it's uh, and then on and on. It's been a pleasure, really an honor,
0: but you get called for a reason. I mean, the sound that you're that you're getting out of these instruments from these musicians is a very uh, realistic sound. As I'm saying, as I said before, it sounds like uh, we would be on stage with them, which is for us musicians looking at Wayne,
1: that's the biggest dream. I never really (laughs) understood. I mean, I know how a lot of people make live recordings, and they're, well, I'm not sure how they do it, but some guys are really trying to repre- represent an acoustic, acoustic nature of a actual time and a place. So, you know, if you're, sitting, if you're sitting in a concert hall and you're in row 35, you know, seat 256, wherever that is, um, the sound of the acoustics of the room are, are really changed, of course, by having a sound system and by having all these musicians, we're talking about jazz music now, right? If you turned off the sound system, you still hear a lot of sound coming off the stage, particularly some bass coming out of the amp, depending on the bass player, Um, the drums, depending on who it is and what intensity they're playing. The same with the piano, right? So if you turn off the sound system, you still have that sound going in the room. This is something I always keep in mind when I'm doing setup in uh, sort of sound check time when guys, often musicians are just running through something or improvising over a section of a tune or, or inventing something. I'm also, yes, I'm setting up microphones, but I'm also listening to what's happening in the room yeah. because there's no PA on at that point. Um, the band's playing on stage and I'm getting a sense of what's physically happening on stage before any microphone comes into the equation, you know? So I sort of need to, to always remember what natural sound is on the stage and supplement that, um, with the microphones, mm. and I'm a, probably a little heavy-handed with it. Um, I, you know, I grew up in the '60s and the '70s with music, and that's not an excuse. But um, I also, I really like, you know, for low end, for bass drums and bass, and the low end of a piano. Man, I like a big low thing. Yeah. Come on, man, it's fantastic. You go down really low on a piano, the sound is unbelievable. Are you kidding? Yeah. Let's go there. Let's mm. not have it wash out before that, or a bass drum, or a bass, or any number of instruments, right? Mm. Um, so I, I, I think I probably mix with more um, real low end in things than a lot of people, but also I use very high quality microphones, which enable me actually to capture those frequencies in the first place. Mm. Um, and then I can do with them what I want. Yeah. You know, I have a lot less control live um, than I do in the studio. But you know, you have what control you have live, and you, you can wish for more all you want, and it's not going to come true. So you got what you got, and better you just um, buckle down and get to the job. Yeah. Honestly, I really have always really enjoyed mixing concerts, even with no sound check at all. Sorry for the musicians, because I know mm-hmm. it's hard, harder for the musicians. It's really more important for me if we don't have a sound check to just get five minutes, even five minutes with the musicians on stage, get them some kind of monitor sound, mm. uh, which in, in my opinion also should be, monitors should just supplement what you need on the stage. You're not trying to provide a mix in your ears. You should be opening your ears and getting the physical vibe from your drummer and Absolutely. your bass player. You know, and it's not listening. Some, you know, some guys want a frigging CD kind of mix in their monitors. Very few, but it's ridiculous you know, then you're losing all touch with what's actually happening now. And it
0: changes your playing. It changes changes the way you you play dynamically, you
1: know. It takes time for the drums to get to you at the piano. You're sitting at the piano, Pablo. When the drum hits that snare drum, it takes some um, hundred and some whatever milliseconds to get over to you, Mm -hmm. depending on how the monitor system is, it might get to you before. Mm -hmm. So it just changes the whole beat vibe and the feel on the stage. Um so, whatever um I really enjoy mixing with no sound check, more people, the merrier give me fifty thousand a hundred thousand yeah because for me, the pressure is on, and I happen to really focus
0: so and, you need that, that pressure
1: I like it, yeah, I like that um i've, I've I seen apos- you, I've- I apologize to the audience for the first one to two minutes of the song, but you try it, you know but. After a few minutes, give me a couple. It won't take long and I'll get it whipped in there for you, you know? Mm-hmm. And I know that um, some groups, particularly Wayne Shorter's group, because we toured together, is one unit so long, you know, is one one is the, the last acoustic quartet. Um, you know, that group was together, I don't know, almost 20 years, you know, 18, yeah. 19 years, depending on how you're counting, you know, um, in the same quartet, 99.9% of the time. So I know that over the years um, we worked, the musicians and I really worked together while they are playing on stage. Um, We worked together to make the best concert. So those guys, I know, um, just a few comments about Wayne because I know you're really interested in Wayne, as you used to be and most of us are, right? In that quartet. So one thing, for example, Danilo. So Danilo Perez, I've honestly, I've never worked with a pianist that's able to change the tone of the piano, the physical piano, so much. He'll sit down at the piano, and I swear he he ends up sort of feeling the piano and what's what's happening with the piano, what's happening with the action, and uh, various damping and things like that. And he adjusts his playing and absolutely changes the tone of the piano. Yeah. It's throughout the concert even, it just continues to get better. Danilo's changing it by the way he's playing the piano. Mm. So honestly, um, sometimes I'll get in there and make little changes in EQ or something as he's developing his sound and getting the most out of the piano. That's the way I look at it. Um, Other guys, I just never seen anybody do it quite like Danilo. Mm. Um, It's really remarkable. Um, Guys like Herbie and Chick, typically they have their own piano with them Herbie would have a fazioli at almost every gig, yeah. um, and there's a pretty darn strong um, consistency to fazioli. So almost all of them are exceptional and really within a relatively small range. It's my experience; you may have more. Um, it doesn't seem there's not a giant. I don't get a dog fazioli. Never, yeah. you know, where where a Steinway D in ten pianos, you could have you could have two that are just frigging fantastic four or five that are really good pianos, a couple of dogs and a couple of that, you know, medium, right, actually more in the medium. But with a Steinway D, there's always a chance you're gonna get a real winner. It can be the piano, it can be the day, it can be the temperature, it can be the piano and the piano tuner relationship, the piano and the concert hall relationship, yeah. the piano and the pianist relationship, the piano and the piano movers relationship. <laughs> the road condition, the construction, I mean, really everything plays a part, right? Yeah. Um, Yeah. So I'd say a happy piano is a better piano.
0: That's true.
1: (laughs) So I just never saw um, Herbie change the sound so much on the piano, like Danilo. And Chick just freaking sounds ridiculous every time he puts his fingers on the piano.
0: Yeah, yes. (laughs) I
1: I don't know how these guys, That's just so, Remarkable, you know, it's like, really, this is ridiculous. You know, mm. Wow. and i worked wow. with, worked with many other pianists. I just never saw anybody change. I'm, you know, I wasn't a real big jazz fan, so I didn't come from a big background of jazz music. Mm. Um, again, Wayne was my first in. I think one of the groups that really changed my head was I was playing bluegrass music and playing really adventurous bluegrass music harmonically, shall we say? Mm. Cause I wasn't a kid that grew up in the mountains of Kentucky and Tennessee. I was the child of a couple of professors at the university, but I got interested in music. So I, I was a little more interested in some crazier harmony. And the first first thing I really remember really changing me and getting me really strongly to listen to that music was hearing, playing in a band with a, a crazy banjo player in New York um, named Marty Cutler, mm-hmm. who was reharmonizing all these bluegrass tunes, just really ridiculous, crazy, actually hilarious stuff. And, he, he played for me one of the sort of mid-year uh, Steps Ahead records called Magnetic. And I just remember just blew my frigging mind. Um, and then I went on a Steps Ahead tangent for some years and tried, I was playing mostly mandolin. I see. And, uh, and I remember going to see him. I was staying in New York a lot at that time. I remember going to see him at the bottom line and just um, about having a heart attack. That's when Mike Stern was playing guitar. I was also a guitar player. Yeah. Mike Brecker was just mind-blowing. It's wild because I never I was never a guy that wanted to get my pictures taken with music guys, my heroes that I didn't know or even to shake their hand. It sort of meant just very little to me. I understand why it's important for some people, but for me it wasn't the thing. So I remember, you know, being certainly in a position where I could walk over to Michael Brecker and introduce myself or say hello, but What the fuck? Michael Brecker want to know about me. So I didn't didn't do it. Right. Yeah. And then it's so interesting. Many years later, he became a very, very dear friend of mine. Mm. So what a great life experience from somebody. Basically, I was too embarrassed to go over to meet because honestly, I didn't have anything to offer to being a great um, road and recording companion. Man, he was he was a real gem. That's one person I really miss.
0: So with that, with the Directions to Music band, I'm, I'm really interested in how, you know, what happens before a gig when Herbie, uh, I think I saw maybe one soundcheck of his, not with that band, but I'm interested in what, what he's warming up with, what he's, what he's asking for, you know, in terms of soundcheck and what, what's, you know, Schofield told me he, he, he'd sometimes jam like Coltrane tunes with, uh, with Herbie and stuff. You know, I'm, I'm interested in that kind of what's happening.
1: Well. Pablo, I'd have to, I'm going to have to take you to a di- in a different direction. Most of the time, Herbie is not on the stage. Herbie is back in his dressing room chanting Daimoku. Yeah. So Herbie is a very serious practitioner of his Buddhist practice. Yeah. So that's what he's doing most of the time, mm-hmm. is, is sitting back in his dressing room chanting Nam-myoho-renge-kyo
0: you know, did you notice him warming up with anything specific or, um,
1: Absolutely not with Herbie. I don't remember anything specific. Mm. Um, Herbie in general, I found that he maybe spent a bit less time sound check. I would, you know, I mean, it's Herbie Hancock for God's sake. So before he gets there, hopefully I have the piano sounding something, um, resembling a piano in his monitor, yep. you know, certainly there are times in my life when we showed up at the same time together, and it's like, you know, five minute stage sound check, wham, bam concert, you know, usually a live festival or something like that. So then you're just trying to get it in survival mode for him. Um, usually, depends on the group, but usually um, Herbie would, when I was doing stuff, was mostly piano. Occasionally, we'd have key, additional keyboards. Yeah. Um, so basically, just really, really simple, clear things, you know, just mixing his piano, getting him a piano sound. Um, I did it differently over the years. Again, I haven't been out with him in many years now. Yeah. So, one thing I'll get back to getting a little technical slightly, but it could help be helpful to pianists. Sure. And that is that I know during some of the years I was touring with Herbie and probably in the directions and music stuff, I was often miking the piano using uh, MS, a mid side technique. Mm-hmm. And this is using, I was using Shep's microphones, by the way, not far from you in Cologne. Mm-hmm. Um, so using one cardioid in the center and then just next to it, a figure eight microphone, which you then split into two, you put one contra phase and you put one hard right and hard left, that's your MS, the side, and then you have a mid. So that that was something that helped ena- helps enable me, if I do it that way, to get clarity in the center of the piano. Mm. Like I was talking about earlier, when you move both your hands towards the center of the piano into a dense harmony, If you bring down the relationship of the mid microphone and bring up the side microphones, as somebody, as a pianist, is going into that middle, you can do it without really changing the tonality, but keeping all of the notes clearer and the harmony more clear and revealed instead of kind of boxed up and cloudy. Things have a tendency to get lost. So I, I think, you know, some of the time I was doing that with Herbie, if I was doing that in the monitors, um, that, that change that I would be doing in front of house wasn't happening when I was mixing because he was getting a different monitor sent. Mm. So I would just get him up piano sound. Very often for a lot of these guys, uh, piano players will often have two, two monitor wedges. Um, I like to encourage them to raise the monitors off of the floor to get them closer yeah. to their head, um, maybe 20 centimeters or something. Um, also not blowing into the piano, maybe coming slightly back. Just you know, the more volume you have in monitors, is just more messy ambient sound you have on the stage. But Herbie really, I don't, I don't remember any crazy events um, in sound checks with him doing anything particular like that. You know, the guys sometimes will just end up having fun during a sound check. I'm yep. just playing some crazy shit. Um, Wayne kind of rarely did sound checks in the last years. We, I didn't really need him to. I'd get a sound check if I could on the trio and then basically just turn Wayne's mic on. Uh, <laughs>
0: that's actually what I was, yeah, it's also what I was curious about because uh, I've, I've witnessed a couple of sound checks of you guys. A and clap. It, yeah, I, I was, but It's I, I not was, exactly,
1: it's not exactly a sound check, is it?
0: That's what I wanted to say.
1: And Were you there when Wayne was there? No, it's very different.
0: Never, ah. never when I saw it, Wayne was there. So Wayne always came for, for the gig, I think. And, uh, yeah just showed up when it well, was for time many to play. years
1: wayne would come to the sound check also okay so that was a very different vibe you know when wayne's on the stage or basically anywhere if you go into wayne's dressing room it's kind of like he's holding court like the judge everybody's pretty much listening to every word wayne's saying yep. and they're concentrating on wayne because something really special might come out of his mouth yep. if you wait very long it's going to come out for sure you know something really abstract and from a really different point of view and uh, usually really nailing some a subject. You know, Wayne will really nail a subject matter from uh, really just an arrow coming from some other direction that you never saw coming. Yeah. <clears throat> you know, really craziness. Uh, so when Wayne's at a sound check, pretty much that's where it goes, it goes to Wayne. Um, in, in the last years, he, the only time he would come would be as if he'd bring a new piece of music for the guys. Hmm. And sort of turn it over to them. Danilo would basically would just be listening to Wayne, paying attention to Wayne. They'd all just get in there on Wayne. Um, now, when the trio was just sound checking, um, Danilo was never a guy that would just really stop and give me uh, five minutes of solo, in- uninterrupted piano playing to get a sound check. So after some years, I stopped trying. Um, <laughs> Herbie would do that. You know, Herbie or Chick or somebody will do that. They'll just stop everything. Go, let's just get some piano. Work on the left hand of the piano, the right hand, the mix, blend, blah blah. Yeah. Get it all done in two or three minutes. um You can do this really quickly. But some guys, they they don't use sound check for sound check. They use sound check more for rehearsal and getting loose. And that's also okay. They're great musicians. What the fuck, mm. you know? Um, and you
0: then just work with what you can.
1: Yeah, you just the, deal yes. with it, brother. Yeah, Just deal with it. Why are you there? Yeah. You're there to have a great concert, not because stuff has to be done this way or that way. Mm-hmm. There can be technical problems, too, where something's going on, some cable's not working, something's got a noise, some guy on stage is changing a cable, or, you know, I'm test testing what's wrong with this microphone, or blah, blah, blah. So just going through the quartet, um, Patitucci is, is really a pro in that regard. But he would stop he would stop instantly at any time and uh, just give you bass, you know, Arco or Pits or whatever. Um, because he, he really got it that in one minute, two minutes, you could get it together and back to back to fun time on the stage. Yeah, Just playing some music. Um, Brian, I pretty much never really bothered Brian with stuff. Occasionally I'd need, need really just to hear his bass drum, to hear Alex responding in the room and the speakers. Yep. Um, and the way I mic the drums typically in jazz I usually put overhead microphones back by the drummer's ears,
0: yeah, I wanted to talk to you about that because that makes i mean that ding makes dong such a deep difference ding dong, yeah
1: i why did people get in this habit of putting these microphones up in the air over a cymbal? I mean first, nobody ever hears a cymbal up there unless they're working on the lighting system above <laughs> you, or if you're an insect and you fly over, yeah so the reality is when somebody hits us, I mean, I'm a musician, I'm not a drummer, but I'm also not an idiot. And I pay attention to all the different instruments. So I'm thinking about drums. When you're hitting the cymbal, the cymbal is moving air in front of you like this. Also, the cymbal sounds very different from the perspective of the drummer. Totally. The the microphone can capture from above. You don't have that motion of the air. Um, You've got totally different reflections on the cymbal and then you're picking up all the other drums from, in my opinion, a funny angle. Um, I used to do it like that because I just hadn't thought about it. And then it occurred to me very simply, I think actually with Brian, I'm thinking, you know, Brian Blade, who is just such an amazing drummer, gets such an amazing sound. How, how is Brian determining how hard he wants to hit that rack tom? And where on the head he wants to hit that rack tom? And where on the cymbal, which side of his, which part of his stick is he using on, which part of the symbol? How is he hitting it? Well, every decision that Brian's making, first it's coming from his heart and then it's being interpreted through his ears. So I'm thinking the dynamics that Brian's getting, all of the dynamics that he's creating inside of his kit, he's creating them because that's what he wants and what he wants he's perceiving from his perspective of his ears. Yeah. So simply put the microphone by his ears to give him the same dynamic feeling um, with the overheads back by his ears. Mm-hmm. So it picks up the whole kit, basically. Yeah. Um, it doesn't work for every drummer and it wouldn't work in every style. I'm sure there'd be a lot of drummers that would not wanna work that way. Yep. Um, One, because they're not used to it. Two, because they wouldn't think it would work. And you know what, it might not work for some drummers. For example, some a really loud fusion scene where somebody's got, you know, frigging six rack toms and three floor toms and three snare drums. Um, And they're also used to creating the sound with these really tight mic toms. Mm. Um, I would have to say, I'd like to go for it. I'd like to, I'd still probably try to mic that in a different way. I'm not a real believer in micing all the toms with little frigging Sennheiser clip on mics. I mean, who who wants to hear the tom with their ear an inch away from the from the head. Yeah, nobody hears it from there. I understand about the isolation, and you know, some guys, you know, the great drummers, a lot of the jazz fusion drummers, man, they know more about it than me, um, honestly, and they're making great records, right? So, I don't know, but I can't. I I would I would still try the mics back by the drummer's ears. Yeah, especially for cymbals.
0: Have you tried it with still- with different instruments? I mean. It- i think you're using this similar mic for wayne right it's a de- no it depends or i mean maybe it looks for, similar over, I don't
1: know. So, it would, so on tour well i've done lots of tours and i try to change things so what you're probably used to is uh, seeing is the dpa microphones which um which are excellent microphones no question um they give you exactly what's there i would say that in Some instances, Shep's microphones have a little more musicality. Hmm. Um, I'm a great fan of Shep's microphones. I'm also Hmm. a great fan of ribbon microphones. So when I started doing that with Wayne, I was using uh, Royer ribbon microphones for overheads. Um, So for years I used DPAs, you could use a pair of Shep's. Absolutely, they'd be fantastic. Um, Ribbon mics are great. Ribbon mics are really fantastic because of the rejection. You know, the ribbon mics pick up just from the front and the back, so they don't pick up anything from the side. So if I'm talking into a ribbon mic, I get pure sound, but when I'm over here, nothing's coming in the side or the top. I also really like ribbon mics on bass drum, Mm. and I angle that up towards the bass drum like uh, at about a 45 degree angle. So the bass drum is here, here's the head of the bass drum, and I have the microphone out about, about, I don't know, in centimeters, what is that? 15 or 20 centimeters out. Um, mm. With the top, of the, with the top of, the, of the ribbon microphone aiming at the floor or at the rack toms. So you don't hear any rack toms. You hear a mm. bass drum. It really works well live, particularly live. Works well anyway. Um, so you're rejecting both sides. If you have kind of a typical jazz trio setup or even quartet setup, very often looking at the stage from an audience perspective, you have the piano on the left side, bass in the middle and drums on the right, kind of typical right so if I have that bass drum the bass drum now is over here and I have that mic perspective like this now it's the side is blocking the bass amp out of this side and out of this side um, blocking a lot of the front of house yes it's picking up sound going up on the stage but it's not problematic Mm. so I like using ribbon mics a lot in general they're great
0: right now talking about Wayne uh, how can you try stuff like that out? You know, uh, try new microphones out if a soundcheck if a, oh, just... if a is so loose, uh, like you like you told me,
1: you know. Why'd we just do it. There's only one way to find out, Pablo. <laughs> you know, if 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 you're looking for a reason why you can't, because nobody's you know taking the you know taking the time just to help you find a new mic technique. No man, they're just playing, which is what they should be doing. Yeah. Just playing, you know, just play. More fun, the more fun, the better. It
0: did sound the more better, laughing, the
1: yeah. better. The music's only gonna be better,
0: mm.
1: you know. Um, so very often with Wayne Shorter's group in a sound check, they might take a, a section of one of Wayne's compositions and just go off and explore it.
0: Yeah.
1: You know, we'd usually start with Brian and, and Danilo exploring something, and then Brian's still maybe tweaking his kit and getting in there, and then they'd get off, you know, finding some shit. Yeah, and that uh, whether or not that stuff ever reveals itself in a concert, um, you never know. Um, it may or may not, but just the fact that they experience that musical journey, taking a look through that doorway, what was down that hallway, harmonic hallway yeah. of that you know section of music, now they've already been there, so they can touch upon it or not, or it's just another another doorway, yeah. another opening, right? You know. It's So it, maybe they explore something. So that's always really fun and interesting. I would really try to do something different almost every day. Mm. Try something different. I gotta, probably not every day because you're too crazy sometimes, you don't have any option. It's everything you can do just to pull it off. But um, many times I would always try um, d- different things. Put just an additional piano mic somewhere on the piano. Yeah. And then just because I have it there, I would tell the monitor guy, forget about it. Like it doesn't exist. Yeah. And just because I have it at the front of the house doesn't mean I got I have to use it.
0: Mm.
1: You can leave it off too. Have you tried so, the
0: the me... close to the to the ears thing with the pianist too?
1: Well, certain it would certainly work. I think any instrument will work like that. There's a I can't remember which engineer there is. It's a pretty famous New York engineer who's doing all these recordings like that with miking all the instruments or I think virtually all the instruments. Is it Frank Filippetti? I don't know. I don't know the guy. I know he's famous guy. I think it could be Frank Filippetti. Excuse me if I'm wrong. It's somebody else well known. Um, And they've been doing recordings with all the musicians where two little microphones over their ears. Yeah. All the musicians inside a symphony, piano, bass, drums, everybody. But man, it's the same as what I said for the drums. You're getting your perspective on your instrument from your perspective. Some instruments you feel through your body maybe in a different way. Yeah. Um, I think a piccolo feels like maybe like a drill going through your brain. If you're playing, a, your teeth are resonating. I don't know what's happening with it, you know, or just imagine you're playing a you know, a tuba.
0: Yeah.
1: You know, there's probably some frigging impact on your lungs and just body these low notes, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's part of the whole thing, right? Mm. Or your arms wrapped around the cello. I mean, that's a pretty, pretty close relationship, yeah. you know, violin right in your face, you know. So I think you can't lose with that. I never have really done that in the studio. Um, I, I would always say that if you can't get a sound on an instrument, you just can't get a sound you like, that's the probably the next place to try is by the musician's ears. Somebody you know?
0: once did it with me in a, in a, a recording session and I, I loved it. And specifically did- um, remember the moment when he you know he was trying out stuff and then he just put two mics here i don't remember which mics it, it uh it was but he, he i just remember him saying now i'm hearing what you're hearing yeah and check I re- it out yeah I well, first,
1: it. well first pablo may i recommend for you that in the future you take a pen and paper or your ipad because now i know herbie talked you through the ipad so you're clear <laughs> type yourself a message, what kind of microphones they were. Because these things, that's gonna help you in the future. Yeah. Because if you relate that experience to me, I'm thinking, hey, what kind of microphones were those?
0: Yeah, sure.
1: You know, and then, okay, it's also in the environment, the room you were in, with the piano that you were with. So in the last couple of weeks, I was thinking more than usual about pianos. Mm. Uh, Why? Because they're interesting creatures. (laughs)
0: No, I just thought that it was a specific, uh... very
1: interesting creatures, you know, the physics of a piano were incredibly interesting, you know, I was thinking about a lot of things and I was trying some different things. So, you know, I always really enjoy this on stage, actually. Um, I really like talking to piano tuners, try to take advantage of their knowledge, because a lot of these guys really know a lot about a piano. And everybody's going to have a different vibe and opinion and um, so I've learned a lot from different piano tuners around the world, that's for sure. Mm. I really enjoy that.
0: What kind of lessons? So, Can you maybe go into detail?
1: Yeah, well, I don't, I'm certainly no expert, So and not being a pianist and uh, not having intention to become a tuner or a technician on the piano, I was more interested in sound and tonal qualities than action-related issues, yeah. which probably for a piano, pianists are really important. So just a few things that occurred to me. In, these might, might be what some people might consider insights into the obvious, um, but sometimes the obvious isn't so clear, you know? Um, so when, I was thinking about this, Pablo, when you think about a piano and when they were originally designing a piano, how was the piano made to project? It wasn't actually made to project for the pianist. It was made to project for an audience yeah. sitting at approximately 90 degrees to the piano sideways to the piano. If they're on a stage, they'd be actually above the piano, right? Now, the audience would be below the piano. Yep. Um, so when you're thinking, okay, the is intended to produce sound at 90 degrees out of the piano. Well, okay, number one, interesting already. Yeah. So, and one, one thing that pretty, pretty much gives you a real clue to that is the angle of the lid of the piano. I guess you've probably experimented having lid off of pianos, which is also very interesting changes the tonality of a piano a lot.
0: Yeah, I don't like it so much, I have to say.
1: Uh-huh, it, yeah, because you lose that sort of power of projection.
0: Yeah, di- and also direction and it's kind of, it feels funny, it feels funny.
1: Yeah, it's, it can be, it can honestly be pretty helpful inside of symphonic things. Mm-hmm. With Wayne with Symphony, we would often do it for a number of reasons. One, a sight line for the violins mm-hmm. to be able to see the conductor or the other musicians. Um, it's good to be able to see all the musicians. Absolutely. In an orchestra, in an orchestra it's kind of weird because some musicians have a hard time seeing other musicians. So, with the piano lid off you get less reflection like that. That's another point I wanted to make about the miking for live work. You might have noticed that with Wayne Shorter, another benefit of having those drum mics back by the overhead or back by drummer's ears is now you don't have two boom stands going over the drummer like this with cables wrapped all around that helped block the eye contact between the drummer, the bass player, the drummer, the pianist, everybody. Absolutely. Now you got these big metal robotic arms with wires hanging on in the middle of everything, instead of having a clear picture of the guy's eyes and face. Yeah, Because you there's actually, you go a lot of places just by looking somebody in the eye, looking in a certain way, you know. It can be with, it can be just a million things that you're saying with your eyes, you know. Yeah. Um, so I think that's really important to create a great visual aspect. That was one reason I used the DPA mics on the active boom poles, because you just had these little tiny mics with little booms. In videos, it's fantastic, because the video cameras can shoot from almost every angle. There wasn't a stand between one guy's eyes, nowhere ever. Yeah. So that was really important. Okay, back to the piano sound. <laughs> so I was thinking about this, I was thinking lots of crazy things about the piano. I did a little bit of research and I was able to find that at one point they were experimenting it over at Steinway about putting, you know, the lid on the piano, also about doing something like this under the piano Whoa. to project sound out, mm-hmm. which, which got me thinking even more. Well, I was already thinking a lot about the underside of the piano. I, l-
0: you know, I love the sound project. below the piano. I love that. Absolutely.
1: These people ignore this. I love this. I spend this. a lot of time under a piano. Putting, Me too. Putting, uh, yeah. Me well, too. There's a, there's a heck of a lot happening under a piano.
0: Man, I my father is a pianist, so as a kid I would lie under the piano. oh I love you that really sound, don't.
1: you know? Absolutely. Okay, well, Pablo, you're going to be interested then in this. I'll go in that direction now. Yeah. So for, for many years when I do a live concert, never in the studio, but in live concerts, I would also put a couple of pickup or contact microphones on the piano, uh, either because of the band was kind of either an early Wayne shorter band with electric guitars and really heavy drums. You had to get more volume. I used the pickups or microphones as kind of an audio security insurance that I had some piano made at the highest levels um, or that that could help the, the pianist in his monitors if everybody else was wailing with squealing electric guitars and basses and shit, horns and stuff. So, so because of that I'd spent a lot of time under the pianos for many years, I've been using the Schertler Dine, uh, Dine pickups. They're actually moving coil microphones that go under, I put them under the piano. Most people would mount them on the top of the piano. And I discovered many years ago the size of the pickup was about the size of a euro, or something like the size of a euro. And um, it occurred to me one day that I could use a stethoscope, like the doctors use, mm-hmm. to listen to your heart to hear exactly that same sound signature at a particular spot on the soundboard so i always take on the road i carry my stethoscope and i crawl under the piano with my pickups and as you move the contact microphone on the soundboard you just move it this far the tonality is completely different mm-hmm. it's unbelievable the changes so depending on your, if it's near a bridge near a side near a a, a, a brace in all different aspects of the piano changes dramatically so I spent a lot of time under the piano and the more, because i just be under the piano. Um, there's so much sound happening under the piano. Um, so I decided to explore a little bit more about miking under the piano. I've not done this live because I haven't been touring, but I just did this in the last couple of weeks. And I was staying at a friend of mine's house in Boston, who's a musician, pianist, composer, and teacher. And he has a Steinway M model in his studio. And I tell you, that's, I think that's the warmest, best sounding, small Steinway I've ever heard. Wow. It's been meticulously maintained by Fred Mudge, who I think is one of the very top piano tuners in the United States. He's in, he based, based in Boston. He tunes for Chick Corea and Danilo. Well, I don't know if he does always with Danilo. Yeah, he tunes for Danilo. Um, so many of the guys, he's the guy. Tunes for the Boston Symphony also loves the piano, knows a lot about it. So the piano's in great shape. And Ben has a nice studio room where he teaches and does some recording. And I started experimenting over there, miking under the piano. Um, So similar thing, I found that because I wasn't using a pickup, I was using a microphone. My experience was I was getting the best sound using omnidirectional microphone, And it really depends on where you want it under the piano. This is kind of a mid range, really woody mid thickness that often you miss if you have microphones too close to the hammers or ambient. If you have microphones up over the hammers or even, even this far from the hammers, you know, it can be above the hammers and back away. you know, um, there's still, you there's a lot of air space and not a lot of wood power of the piano. When you start to listen under the piano, you're not hearing the hammer as much. You're not hearing the funny higher harmonics that can get produced between like the string resonators. Um, where the string resonates, is it the, the little piece of metal called the duplex? Mm-hmm. There's little space, you'll see, you'll see the string runs over this kind of panel, but in Steinways or Yamaha's, most of them have this long, it almost looked like, looks like a bridge. It's supporting the string. I believe it's called a duplex, but you get high harmonics that ring in these spaces between the, the little tuning posts and the duplex and every other
0: yeah.
1: metal component, where something's touching. <clears throat> so I can talk about that in a few minutes. we deal, try to deal with that in other ways as, as well. But by miking under the piano, you're pissing, picking up less of those odd, high order odd harmonics that are just kind of these weird little tings and tangs. Yeah. they really don't deserve to be there. So <laughs> I found getting a really a beautiful woody resonance under the piano. I happened to have a really exceptional mic with me that um, I experimented with a number. This was by far the best, and that was an old Neumann called a KM53, which is an omnidirectional mic with an aluminum diaphragm. They're quite rare. Um, they're much less expensive than they should be, in my opinion. One of the greatest unknown kind of unknown microphones out there. The the only it has an aluminum diaphragm. It's extremely fast. It's the same diaphragm that's in, there's one other Neumann microphone that was the same called an M50, which is the one they use to record, typically used to record orchestras. They put three microphones up over the orchestra. They call a DECA Tree. Yeah. Those are three M50 microphones. They look like a big diaphragm microphone. They're not. It's the same as the small diaphragm um, KM53 capsule. It's just mounted in a in a, like a lucite sphere that makes the high end more directional so it also has the same tube this little km53 they're just remarkable figure microphones it's just one of my favorite microphones ever um, the old neumann pencil mics with the original diaphragms um, of aluminum the cardioid had nickel diaphragms and then there was a switchable model called the km56 omni cardioid or um or figure eight, and that's nickel. So that's kind of my second favorite old Neumann is the nickel. But this omnidirectional aluminum is just something spectacular about it. I just recorded it, uh, two records using it on acoustic bass. Hmm. Um, the only thing I could say that would compare to it is a long body old U47. Sounds really great. Um, so that I put under the piano and I couldn't believe how good it was.
0: Wow.
1: Mind bogglingly good. <laughs> so all those things really play in there. And all of those things are really critical to the piano. And the piano is such an important element um, in all the sound. It's, you know, the most complex yeah. and also is the is is the largest instrument physically. And it certainly has more pickup resonant areas. So you've got the floor reflecting into the soundboard on the bottom. You have drums going directly into the soundboard. You got all kinds of shit floating around, monitors, speakers, the concert hall, or God forbid, um, what do they call them? Side fill monitors that guys will try to use sometimes on an outdoor stage, usually for a much louder band or
0: what's, what's that?
1: Band. Sometimes you're gonna you'll see this sometime in your life, Pablo, when you show up at a jazz festival and they just had, you know, Earth, Wind and Fire or Sly Stone or somebody playing before you, and they ended up having these giant monitor systems they call side fill on the side of the stage Mm
0: -hmm. that are
1: facing the musicians. They're basically almost like PA sound speakers, just pumping crazy amount of level from the sides. Mm -hmm. And certainly in our lifetime, we've showed up for jazz gigs where those things are on because the other band was using them and playing, you know, maybe playing reggaeton and they wanted it to be really loud on stage. So all of a sudden all that shit's in your piano and all that shit's in your piano mic and it sounds like junk, you know?
0: Yeah.
1: So I'm, I, I know I haven't stuck with the topic with That's you long, fine. Pablo.
0: That's fine, man. Go
1: for it. you want to take back it. to a topic and try?
0: Um, no, we just talked about the, the, the sound coming from under the piano. And I'm really interested in that. You know, I'd, I'd love to hear what you, what you did, what you found well, out I'll tell in you, Boston.
1: Take, take, an, take an omnidirectional mic and put it on a low stand and put on some headphones and put it under your piano. Mm. Well, have somebody else do it while you're playing the piano and move it around. Yeah, you know. Um, I also, I'm a, a really a nut about phase alignment, especially in recording. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you have a microphone under the piano pointing up and microphones over the piano pointing down, it's, it's not exactly correct, but it's probably gonna sound better by flipping the polarity switch on the channel of the under microphone. Mm-hmm. So I say polarity, it's often on a console or mixer, it'll say phase but what they mean is polarity because it's flipping the phase 180 degrees. So you're probably gonna get a lot clearer sound, but you could in a live gig or just recording at home or something, if you had two mics up over the piano and you pan those a little bit harder right and left, wherever you want from hard pan if you're a little crazy to uh, nine nine o'clock and three o'clock and then put that under piano mic in the middle, in the center, I think you might be happy. Mm-hmm. Just have somebody move it around. Um, I haven't experimented with that with nine-foot Steinways, or I'm, I sh- I'm sure it's the same story. It's just going to be a question of where to put it. The fact that it's omnidirectional, it's going to make a little bit less of a difference as you move it around hmm. than a cardioid mic. I wouldn't use another kind of microphone. Only omni or wide cardioid, which is kind of like a half omni.
0: I'm interested in the recording process of Emanon because I read um I read that Wayne, Wayne wanted to redo a couple of things together with Danilo in, the, in, in Danilo's club for, for the record. And uh, I'm curious about, because, and also in other, other records of his, he's very, he has very, uh, I think, very interesting ideas about overdubbing stuff.
1: Well, let's see. Let's, how about we just start at the beginning? I'll give you a little Eminon story for you. Man, I love that. Well, first, you know, it was Wayne writing that stuff, which is was really unbelievable. So I remember being on the road with some other tour, and Wayne would be calling me, telling me when he finished like two more bars of something. He, I remember somewhere I got a phone call. I don't remember who I was touring with, but I'm on the road in Europe, and the phone rings. I'm like at an airport somewhere, and Wayne was talking about one piece. He's like bar 283 cello c natural (laughs) that's it i'm like what the fuck? (laughs) so the first thing with these amazing compositions right um yeah and the plan was always to do it uh with orpheus chamber orchestra Mm. which is really a fantastic group of musicians in new york so it came down and the whole recording event um was pretty stressful and crazy. So before we recorded, we recorded, um, I think or in January of man, what year was it? Maybe 2013, mm-hmm. um, Wayne had been here in Panama. I was not living in Panama at the time, but I was here. Wayne was down here. Maybe we played jazz festival or something. Um, but Wayne was down and, uh, Wayne got pretty darn sick down here. He had a lot of problems for a while with lung infections and issues like that. And that was really manifesting here. We had him kind of in and out of the hospital. Mm -hmm. He was having a lot of trouble breathing. Um, And we went directly from Panama in January, where it's, you know, 30 degrees, to New York, where it was like zero degrees and snowing and raining and blowing and all that shit. And when we went, we immediately... They'd done a couple of days of rehearsing with uh, Eminon Music with the orchestra. Without me, I was still in Panama. I think I came for the last day of rehearsal. Then we did one concert somewhere in like really western New Jersey or eastern Pennsylvania, not too far from New York, just to sort of try it out. I can't recall the town, Uh, university gig, kind of off the charts. And then the next day we played Carnegie Hall. I have the recording. uh, before the recording?
0: No, I, ha- I have the recording from Carnegie Hall. I like hey, that now,
1: case. that would be illegal. How do you have a recording of that? I don't have a recording of that. Somebody in the balcony? I, th- I guess so, yeah. Okay, I support that. Sorry, Carnegie <laughs> Hall. I know you don't support it. It's not me. I don't know who has the recording. It wasn't me. Yeah. You know, it's a giant issue at re- recording. You can't record in Carnegie Hall unless you pay a recording fee, which is extremely high. There have been some funny things over the years. I believe, you you, I, you know, I really enjoy working at Carnegie Hall mm. myself, but it took me probably five years minimum of going there to earn the respect with the crew on the working on the stage crew, um, audio guys, everybody on the stage, um, a very strong union house, very famous place, as you know. Um, So once they sort of trusted me and understood that I respected their rules, um, then I got along great with those guys there. And then the rules relaxed a little bit within reason, right? And never taking advantage. So that was actually ended up uh, good news. I remember there once with Mike Brecker, with some group and Mike was about to record something in the sound check just for musical reference and one of the stage guys came up to him and said if you press the red button it costs ten thousand (laughs) dollars and mike's like okay never mind (laughs) yeah you know Yeah, yeah so i'm glad you have a recording of that probably it was a good show i remember it was a nice show yes but wayne was still not uh feeling his best that's for sure you know wayne is wayne wayne's really powerful wayne will never give up he's too stubborn to allow sickness to stop him. Mm. So, you know, we did that, always fine actually. I remember the music was beautiful. I'm in heaven mixing that. I yeah. probably didn't have much mixing going on of the orchestra, maybe only a few mics, you know, honestly. I don't even recall. Carnegie Hall, they probably don't like a lot. And the sound system in Carnegie Hall, last I was there, is still mono.
0: Mm.
1: Wow. Which in some ways actually makes, kind of makes some sense, but. um It could be better in my opinion, but whatever. So we had a great show there. Then after the concert, we had the recording session the next morning. So after the concert, I remember packing up the mics and getting the guys back to the hotel and then rushing to the studio to help work on mic setup for the orchestra the next day. So we had really limited time. Wayne was not in his best health, his lungs particularly. Hmm. Uh, So, We had a very limited amount of time to do that recording. And Orpheus Chamber Orchestra is very famous and known for not having a conductor. So it's a conductorless orchestra. Um, I was told by the executive producers that I couldn't record the orchestra more than three hours. that I had to record the entire orchestra thing in three hours or less. And it was all about money and how expensive that would be. Um, In my opinion, it wasn't enough time you know, I didn't have any chance to move microphones, make any adjustments or change. Basically we had to do stuff and almost everything's done in one take. Um, we got in some issues there with it being a classical orchestra. They're not used to playing in a studio mm-hmm. at that time in New York. There was no studio large enough really to record an orchestra. There wasn't an orchestral stage and I have very limited experience recording orchestra. What an honor and a pressure to have, to be able to do this for Wayne Shorter with friggin' Orpheus chamber orchestra and not being a guy who recorded 50 classical records. I hadn't done it, you know? Um, but I'd done a lot of classical concerts and I pay attention and I love the music. So that's, I just did my best, but it was really time was really an issue. So I positioned the guys, um, in a way, physical way where they were used to being when they played in the orchestra. In other words, I sort of swapped out the... We, we had to record an avatar. Again, I think the room was too small for the orchestra, but it's what we had, so I had to deal with it. And I did need some ISO booths on the drums um, and things, but I positioned the drums actually in the piano ISO booth, so the drums were over near the acoustic basses and cellos of the orchestra because when Brian typically plays with the orchestra, that's where he is. Hmm. And the orchestra was used to him being on that side. So I positioned then the piano over on the side more by the violins. Physically, they were in some isolation. Danilo was isolated quite a lot, Brian less so, because the orchestra needed to hear Brian. Some of the musicians were, the orchestra musicians were not comfortable wearing headphones, so we ended up setting up a, a speaker in the room with the orchestra for those who didn't use headphones to be able to hear something being at some drum um symbols or some beat or maybe bass or whatever they needed i don't even recall we ended up with the isolation doors to the drum booth open you know yeah. open this far so danilo was secured in a piano booth john and wayne john was kind of baffled standing right behind wayne behind a gobo a wooden and rock wool absorber between him and Wayne so he was between Brian and John or he was between Brian and Danilo and could see them it was kind of in a typical position and he had contact to Wayne kind of he's behind Wayne then Wayne was behind the like look from a conductor's position facing the orchestra basically so Wayne's leaking into the main three orchestra mics above I actually used some crazy exper- experimental microphones from the Netherlands up in the Decca tree as well. So I actually had seven microphones up in the air. That's mm. another story. That's from a friend of mine, Leo de Klerk in the Netherlands, who's a brilliant audio engineer and musician. Um, he recorded something like 800 classical and jazz records for Philips. Mm. Totally knows this stuff and he's an excellent pianist. And he's developed what I think is one of the most amazing speaker technologies in the history of man. Actually, it's called the Bloomline Omniwave system. We'll talk about that maybe later. He invented something for microphones. This was also extremely interesting. Only four of those microphones exist in the world, and he sent me a couple for the recordings. Um, So I had seven microphones as main symphony microphones, but I was nervous um, that I wouldn't have a proper blend and would need more individual instruments or sections for different sections of Wayne's music that I'd need to highlight, maybe some woodwinds, maybe I wouldn't be able to grab them from the symphonic microphones. So because the music is is so important to me, I think it's just unbelievable, Wayne's writing. This is just the highest level of composition that I could possibly be involved with in my lifetime. What an honor. So I really respect this music and because I've been with Wayne so long, I spent so much time with Wayne, um, I have a pretty good idea of what he's getting at. I, you know, whenever I think that about Wayne Shorter, though, whenever I think Wayne's going to think something, he thinks the totally another thing It messes with my <laughs> So I just wanted to represent the music best I could. So I recorded a lot of tracks. Um, we had to do all of this stuff live, by the way, while we were on that little break, I grabbed some of the music scores. Oh, so, Rob. It looks like a computer, except it's Wayne's frigging pen and handwriting. Let me find a. It's so clear. Wayne is so meticulous about this stuff. I have. Just a, try and find something.
0: Yeah, I have a, a couple of uh, handwritten stuff of his. Found it on the internet. This,
1: I swear, I'm looking at it. It totally looks like a computer, but then I see erasures and yeah, and stuff. Yeah. I mean, just anything. So, I mean, when you get in here on this stuff. Oh man. You know it is.
0: He drives read all that real of it himself.
1: Yeah, everything by hand. But it's you know page after page after page. I was thinking maybe I should um, use this as wallpaper for a guest bedroom.
0: And could then let me stay in it, please. <laughs>
1: upper corner. So the um, Wayne's got a lot, and there's Wayne's got a lot more symphonic music that um, hasn't been recorded. It certainly hasn't been released. You know, we've done a lot of other things over the years. Yeah. A lot of it. I mean, there's a lot of stuff that could be released. There yeah. was a. I'll get back to Amazon. I'm just sort of taking a side channel here. Go ahead, man. Um, earlier in the orchestra stuff, one of the reasonably early ones we did with the Wayne Shorter Quartet was at Concertgebouw in Amsterdam. Man,
0: I have the, the recording, t- man. I love that. I love that gig. That's 2006, oh, okay. well, right? There was a couple
1: of gigs. It could be. So you know all of that stuff. I don't know. So what did you get a bootleg?
0: Yeah, like from. Oh, <laughs> is it a good bootleg? I mean, it's the hundredth row or something. I don't know, but it's just- No, well,
1: I have have really good recordings of that. Really, really good. Oh no. And check this out. Those, um, we played two nights of, we had two days of rehearsals with the orchestra, and then we had two two nights of concerts with the orchestra. Um, And we were just doing half of the concert. So we were doing the second half. And the first half, I do not recall whose music it was. It was a new uh, composer performed with the orchestra. And they were recording for a record. So they multi track recorded everything. And then they just went ahead, they went ahead and recorded everything we did too. So that stuff exists, all multi track recorded. And my board recordings of that night are actually frigging really good. That was a very large orchestra, so it was really exciting. It was a 100-piece symphony. So I remember we had 57 violins, eight contrabass plus John. I'm in heaven. Uh I mean, I'm in heaven. 57 violins.
0: Wow.
1: Let's get some violins going. I mean, unbelievable. So there's a lot of other music like that that's never been released, was never professionally recorded. And that's really a shame, actually. How much? Um,
0: how much does Wayne listen back to stuff like that? I mean, if you record every show, um, how much does he uh, be, does he come to you not, and say, "I wanna, I wanna listen no, to that"? No, nothing.
1: No. Well, first, absolutely nothing. <laughs> <laughs> now, his wife, his wife would come to me after a concert and say, "Send me that concert. Send me that music. Oh my God! You know, I don't think Wayne listens to much music at okay. all." Mm-hmm. Um, As we progress in the Eminon story, it many times, Wayne doesn't even have a stereo working, an active stereo system, sound system working, you know, for various reasons, he's had a million. Um, So I don't think he listens. If he does, he's gonna listen to classical music, I would think, or something really completely freaky, like, you know, Justin Bieber or something to try to figure out what everybody's seeing in it. He was on a big Justin Bieber kick for about a year. It was really freaky, man. (laughs) <laughs> I, there's some shit that's beyond my comprehension, but there's a, with Wayne, there's a reason, you know, wow. um, somewhere, I'll just, I'm not that developed yet. Maybe in another thousand lifetimes, I'll see what he <laughs> was getting. So, but he just doesn't listen to stuff. Typically with the release of these live records over the years, you know, Wayne just wasn't into going into the studio in general. He was thinking that the, sh- the shit was really happening on stage and that in the moment. And I'm all with that. And, uh, I'm afraid I just couldn't do any better job recording that shit live. I was trying to be the frigging tour manager and booking all the Mm -hmm. pickups and when's dinner and where's dinner and that interview. And I mean, Jesus Christ, I'm only one human being. So I just tried to capture shit. And then with the intention of um, at least having something and then being able to potentially salvage some value from the recordings later. So often as those records would come about, then Wayne would have me send him recor- all the recordings, and we'd go through all of the different performances. He'd comment on this performance or that performance. It was pretty much only Wayne; wasn't the rest of the group involved very, very rarely, if at all, really. Mm. Um, in there were many cases over the years when maybe I would I would feel the musical impact of a particular performance more on one concert than another, and Wayne would choose another one. Yeah. But you know what? It's his music. Yeah. If I write the shit, let me choose. If I write (laughs) and play it, I'm the frigging audio engineer. You know, but I love the music. Yeah. And I also understand what's powerful as a musician. So sometimes Wayne would choose something that I really didn't get it. But that it doesn't mean that Wayne doesn't get it and see the value. I know I think I talked about this a couple of times with Danilo. And Danilo would point out the reasons of Lane. He would understand some of the musical, shall I say, consequences, Mm -hmm. maybe more more than I would. Um, What do you think is
0: his process there?
1: um, Just some crazy development. I mean, you guys know, musicians like you really understand. That group really almost improvised like a one unit. It was crazy. It's not like we did, you know, bass solo, piano solo, drum solo. You know, it was always this evolving group thing. And talk about a pure democracy. You know, anybody could interject anything at any point. And it's always amazed me at a musician's level for those guys. You know, throughout a a concert, Danilo or John um, or Brian, but more typically because of the instruments they were playing with the bass or the piano, they they would constantly introduce new little fragments or hinges to the music. and what's always really un- unbelievable to me, Pablo, the guys at this crazy level, all their ideas are good ideas. Yeah. It's like they, I don't remember any time when like Patatucci lays down something and then gives up on it. <laughs> he never gives up on it. It was good to begin with. Mm. You know, um, I think if something wasn't developing, they're going to put another hinge on it and take it in another direction but they're not gonna forget where it came from either. So I just find that really remarkable. All these guys, you know, Chick, Steve Gadd, any of these great musicians, they can go at any moment um, somewhere else. I think that's where the great magic is. And I think that's likely, and again, I could be wrong, can never speak for Wayne, that that's where the, what Wayne Wayne found is the most powerful thing, excuse me, as I just spilled drinking water onto electrical (laughs) things. Oh my god, well, okay it's under electrical things that should be good I'm sitting the uh, computer sitting on my console so okay back to, I'm not, so we had to record that thing really fast which is a shame I would have for me and my idea of heaven would be uh, that's just one of these super billionaires with more money than he needs to come up give us plenty of money to take a week to make that record you know going in rehearsing the studio spend the day moving microphones the next day, moving them a little more, everybody getting more comfortable with the music and then just having a super catered lunch and then just playing our butts off
0: because
1: mm. everybody was in the mood, no time restraint, yep. no place to go. We're booked till midnight. We're making, we're probably going to try to get everybody home for dinner with your family at eight, but if we're having too much fun, we'll stay everybody's getting paid. Let's go, you know? So too bad. We couldn't make a record like that. Um, I believe Wayne's music deserves it. It's a shame, you know, so in my country, um, they build bombers and missiles and shit. And we don't put any money into the most important arts, you know, too bad. But so we deal with it. So we had to do it really fast. Um, The music was really complex. Um, It's really amazing the level of the musicians, because almost that entire record is one take. Um, I'd have to go back to review what happened. I think there was, I think uh, maybe Lotus, maybe I, we did the intro again and maybe I used the second intro, just that. Um, I don't think there was any other major edits or passes. So basically everything's one take. Might have had two takes on a couple of the pieces, on the shorter pieces, maybe on the Three Marias or something or uh, mm. Prometheus Unbound, both of which went directions I wasn't expecting them to go. Hmm. But, you know, what am I doing expecting anything? I'd be a fool. I am a fool, <laughs> like that, you know. Um, so, in general, you know, there's the performances I think were really quite strong. It was amazing that uh, in some of the pieces, like in Lotus, for example, um, the symphony's going and playing Lotus and then all of a sudden, this symphony sort of fades away and it's quartet improvising. Yep. So it was kind of amazing in the control room watching the orchestra because those guys were improvising live with the orchestra sitting there. There's no conductor. Yep. Everybody's got to get a cue from somebody like Patatucci giving them, you know, four bars or eight bars before yep. they need to come back in. Um, but I love the looseness of that. The quartet was so hip in some of that. In one of those little uh, quartet explorations, I swear, it's, they're so relaxed. When the symphony fades out there, just they're naturally fading out. The quartet, it basically sounds like you're opening the door to a bar and they're all drunk at the bar with a bottle of cognac with their arms around each other expressing how much they love each other. (laughs) They're like so laid back on the beat. It was amazing. I was just like, man, dig that shit. Um, We kept all this stuff, you know, all of that. Um, I know the orchestra kept asking if we couldn't have some more Uh, Quartet improv stuff. They would have liked to have heard more of it because they were really digging it Mm. We just did it what we did and Wayne played relatively sparsely um, But then the music is written where Wayne is playing relatively sparsely as we toured that maybe a year a couple years later Just a few years ago Occasionally an interviewer or somebody with the audience would say that they would have expected Wayne to play more on Mm. the Eminem stuff and you know For me, Wayne's playing every note. He wrote every note. Yep. Every oboe line, every bassoon, every French horn, that's Wayne, man.
0: Yeah. You know, he's- He's all all over that record.
1: Yeah. He's all over that. So sometimes people would feel that way with the symphonic music, but I dig just what Wayne did. So anyway, Wayne played relatively sparsely, was not in his purest form, probably. We'd just done two gigs and he just was in the hospital, for God's sake, you know? Hmm. Then and Danilo played quite conservatively on the sessions, which was fine. He also knew that we had potential to lay in some more piano parts later if he wanted. So the record just sat for a long time. Um, I had some pressure from exec- executive producers to try to finish it, but Wayne was in no mood to finish <laughs> it or even really make a deep analysis of where it was. So I just sort of fended off the production guys because I knew it wasn't going to be happening. Um, so eventually several years later, we found the time and to have Wayne come down to Panama and try to record overdubs here would have been much easier, I guess, um, more expensive, but easier for Danilo and I just to go to LA and record in LA would have been easier for Wayne just to go down to a studio and do it. I wanted to help, um the situation in Panama and Casco Viejo where I where I now live and Danilo has his music foundation um trying to help support the people here and the growth here by doing something culturally important mm. um by doing it here. And Danilo has a jazz club here and it has an exceptionally excellent um piano. Mm. So it has a has a Yamaha C7. Um but when we got that C7 on the piano, when they rolled it in, I was actually chanting about it, a la Herbie, Alo Wayne. Chanting about the piano would be great. They opened the piano up and it was the best sounding seven foot piano I'd ever heard. And I started looking at it closely. I started noticing things that were different inside of the piano compared to a typical C7. And then I realized something on the serial number. And at the end of the serial number, there was a small X. And I was noticing some other physical differences in the piano, so I called Yamaha in Tokyo the next day and asked them about it. And they said, Well, oh Rob, you got lucky because you got one of the twenty of the twenty prototypes of the CFX nine foot we made in a seven foot. We mm-hmm. made twenty prototypes and you got one. Wow. Lucky you! So it's a great piano. So I knew it was a great piano.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, I helped design. The, it's a little jazz club. I helped design the jazz club. So we built a good sounding stage. You know, really important. Having a stage is concrete with hardwood floor on mm-hmm. the concrete. So no residents from the stage at all. Um, nice shape over the stage in a small jazz club. I really wanted the room to have a wood floor, and they didn't put a wood floor in the in the in the room, which is a drag. And they're kind of all full of marble and hard things, which is a drag, but they got really good stage curtains, extremely expensive, extremely high quality ones, which really helped maintain the the, uh, audio in this small room because it's glass and tile. Um, So we decided to record there. So we brought Wayne down. Wayne was then feeling stronger. Danilo was here, Um, and then we did some crazy stuff. I think on, on Pegasus, which actually starts the record well, the record starts here in Panama. So that starts was with the duo. Jazz. Yeah, Yeah, starts in the Jazz Club. Now, this might be interesting for you and some of your viewers, because it's not common information, but it's the truth. Um, the record starts with piano and saxophone improvisation. What had happened was, we were down there probably working on Pegasus, um, and Wayne and Danilo, they said, hey, man, just stop, don't record. Just, we just wanna improvise for a few minutes. Don't record, don't do anything. Just give us a few minutes. So they're playing, I'm gonna record, I'm no idiot. (laughs) So I press the red button and uh, they played for four or five minutes. And it was what you hear on the record, really amazing, but totally improvised. You know, Just one time, that's it. And then they look at me and they're like, oh man, that was so killing. You didn't record it, did you? And I'm like, yeah, of course I recorded it. Oh. Awesome, and then Wayne, Wayne in the typical crazy Wayne way, he's like, "Rob, can you just cut that into the orchestra?" And whenever Wayne asks me anything, Pablo, I just say yes. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it's possible. Even when he asks me something impossible, which he does kind of often, mm. I just say, "Yeah, it's possible. I don't know how, but watch, watch me. You know, yep. I'm not going to give up either." So. That's what happened there. So at the beginning, that's what that is. Totally improvised. Um, It was really deep. There's some really deep shit. And then I got out the machete and cut in the orchestra. Yeah. So the orchestra, when they heard the record, they probably had a heart attack. Like, <laughs> what the f-. We continue on that, on Pegasus. And I believe on Pegasus, you know, Wayne plays a bit of a solo at the end of that. Mm. What we did in the overdubs was we just added Wayne some of, on um throughout the song, where he was playing sort of important lines and maybe felt they weren't clear or he wanted to add something. Well, I had I'm guessing over 40 microphones active in the room where Wayne was playing in New York. I had seven in the Decca tree and I don't know, 30, probably 36 other mics out in the room for spot mics, whether I was going to use them or not. So Wayne's soprano is going in all the mics. Whatever he played is going in the mics. So there's no getting rid of that. You can't get rid of that. It's inside an orchestra. Um, So there were some things that he felt weren't exactly right. And I said, well, you know, the only thing we can do is just like put on our, you know, captain's hat and go get him. you know, just do it, just play right over that shit. So he went over some of those lines, I think just enhancing them maybe enhancing pitch or clarity or something. Um, Playing the exact the exact notes, you mean? Yeah, I think he went over some things. I don't recall how much we did it, honestly, um, but we did a bit of it, a little bit of it. Then, I'm pretty sure it was on Pegasus where he asked me if I could loop the orchestra. And I was like, well, there's nobody here looking. I don't see any representative from the orchestra to tell me no. Yep. <laughs> so since they're not here, of course. Yep. So I believe that's what happened. We ended up looping the orchestra um, that ends up part of the section under his solo. Could be under another section. There were some other parts we did this. I'll tell you about in a few minutes. There's some crazy shit happened on that record, Pablo. Wayne, we also went through, and I asked Wayne to double some of the violin lines. I can't recall on which songs, I think on Pegasus, but on some of the other ones, So playing in an upper register on the soprano and just Wayne just nailed it. He was feeling good in Panama, no lung problems, just nailed that shit. And it added some more urgency and power to some of those lines. I felt I like that. So then um, the solo that happens on the end of that piece, I'm pretty sure we looped the symphony. So we might have looped, you know, 16 bars or whatever. Um, Had to make it work with wherever Brian was on the drums, undoubtedly. Um, I don't recall what we did. It, that was interesting, because Wayne we had that his solo to do, which is a weird thing because I'd never like had a solo to do with Wayne. Mm. And he just does his solo in the middle of the piece and it's finished. I spoke to Wayne the night before we were going to do the solo, and he's like, "What time do you want me to come down?" He was staying in a in the same hotel that has the jazz club, so he could just come down the service elevator, walk right into the jazz club, super. So I think I told him like, you know how about come down at noon or noon thirty? So twelve or twelve thirty. That's Wayne talk, noon 30. So I think about 9.30 in the morning, I'd got a coffee at the little coffee shop downstairs and here's Wayne, he's like, hey, let's do that solo. I'm like, well, it's a few hours before, but okay, let's go do it. So we got everything together, everything was set up in the jazz club. And then uh, Wayne, Wayne just sat there at nine in the morning and we just played that track and put him in record and he just played that solo one time kabam yeah. and he played if you didn't know it's played really bluesy which is pretty rare for wayne and it's painfully bluesy you know <laughs> so i was just like jesus my god it's like you're playing like it's three in the morning and it's nine in the morning mm-hmm. you know and then he just when we finished he goes you got it i'm like yeah he closed his case he goes i'm gonna go to breakfast breakfast <laughs> Then Danilo, I don't recall on Pegasus precisely, Danilo added some piano lines. Um, in general, Danilo actually impressed me on by some of the things he did in that overdub session more than he impressed me anything else he ever did as a musician. Wow. He was able to go in there and change the feel of the orchestra by the way he would introduce a piano part. So I was doing overdubbing piano parts for him kind of changing the orchestra groove. He could make them swing more by the way he would put in an overdub piano. I mean, he's got his time thing, it's so deep in his Panamanian DNA mm. and the deep jazz thing. So that was really remarkable to me. Like we would change some of those piano parts, more he was driving the orchestra, um, but it was amazing to me that he could affect the orchestra when they had been recorded three years before. Then as we move through that record, I don't remember on which, do you remember which song it is? It's either in the Three Marias or Prometheus where there's no bass for a while. But drums? Yeah, there's drums but no bass. Oh man. Okay, it's not a quiz, Pablo. I don't remember, I made the record. (laughs) So in one of those, now you'll notice, you'll go back and listen. So check out this crazy shit. In one of those songs, we were doing the same thing, overdubbing some Wayne, um things adding some danilo lines between things or supplementing something he did um usually just adding little things but just little things
0: i remember really. i remember him playing a bass line where he's actually playing solos and left hand comping i remember him playing a bass line and octaves at some point like an over well, i don't
1: recall i could be well check this out so i could be it could be that he did something that is an overdrive yeah. as possible um it wasn't up to me to approve it you know pretty much wayne wayne was there for one of the danilo sessions like that one or two of them so there was one of those pieces where you'll hear there's no bass. what happened there was um danilo and wayne started experimenting and they're, they're once again they're like rob don't record anything we just want to improvise for a few minutes through this shit so no the recorder is not running they're not listening to anything they're just playing. They played for maybe four or five minutes, pretty long time. Um, again, improvising, but playing within the structure of a piece somewhat. huh? And it was ridiculous. It was just really amazing. Again, they said, you know, did you record that? I'm like, of course. They said, okay, let's listen to that. So I played it back. They're like, oh, shit. Wayne's like, oh, shit what happens? Cause they went harmonically, they changed. And they said, what happens if you just put, take out, take out John's bass because we went harmonically different, but what happens if you just put Brian's drums back in from what Brian did three years before? So I'm like, well, I don't know what's gonna happen, but I'm gonna have like an escape route from my speakers ready. Cause I don't know what's gonna happen. It could be dangerous. So. We played it back and it was magic. Mm. It, was, it was as if Brian was responding to shit Danilo was doing. <laughs> Brian did it three years before, Danilo was not listening to Brian and we ended up just putting them together. Patatucci, I remember we went to John and we said, hey John, this is what ended up happening with his tune. We took it in some totally crazy friggin' direction You know, do you want to overdub some bass on it? And Wayne and John, he's like, Oh no, that's all good. Sometimes I just lay out, that's cool. Yeah. It's happening. Yeah. You know, so really interesting. I would think 99% of other bass players would want to put a bass on it. And I'm sure if John would have, it would have been super too. Hmm. But you know, Danilo and Wayne were doing that improvising, responding in the moment. But it's incredible that over four minutes that the time, the tempo and the vibe is happening for that edit to work. It's crazy.
0: It's some time travel shit.
1: (laughs) Yeah, exactly, there you go. Interesting, I hadn't thought of it that way. Well, Wayne probably did. So that was really amazing to me. I just couldn't fucking believe that. And it sounds, Danilo and Brian are totally in there together, but they're in years apart. So really interesting. And basically, that's about it. Then I came back here um, to my studio all of that I mixed here in Panama. So with a symphonic recording, like Eminon, I, I probably went overboard. I mean, I spent a crazy amount of time and there was a, a, a incredible amount of pressure on me that I put mainly on myself. No one else is involved. So no one else is listening. No one else is making decisions. Um, sometimes I would have an engineer here as my assistant, um, who knows the way I work and has great ears. It's good to have somebody with you sometimes hmm. or you go crazy. Um, so, I re record everything, and with the symphony, I'm trying to phase align every microphone to the Decca tree over the orchestra. So, I have the three main symphonic mics. So, it's not just timing, I'm actually running everybody through analog phase control and aligning phase mm-hmm. where the pitch of each note is peaking in each microphone. It's not time. It's out of time. It's in phase with using all pass filters. So I do this, I use really high end EQs. I can add, um, little bits of second order harmonics to certain frequency areas at certain volumes only to this instrument, that instrument can add it in stereo or can, I can add it to the difference between two things, all these crazy things, third harmonics to little frequency areas to different things. And I do this to every channel in wow. real time. So, so with
0: Eminem, that must have been insane. With Wayne,
1: well after we did um, all the piano overdubs here, because I hadn't decided on which piano mics I was gonna use, so I, I probably had maybe six options, six microphones in the piano, four to six, for every little overdub, something Danilo might do. <clears throat> so, and I had to phase line all those too. So I ended up with, on some of the songs, as many as 82 microphones that had to be all take this trip, all in real time. So I mean, every oboe spot mic, French horn spot mic, all relation to the decatry and the orchestra and everybody getting a little bit of whatever I think they need. Wow. Um, yeah. So crazy amount of time, I would say I spent, and this is understating it, understatement would be 60 days 10, 12 hour days mixing. Wow,
0: that's insane.
1: That's, wow. um, I certainly spent more than that, but that's all I tell anybody. Yeah. And the guy who works with me when I make uh, the most serious records here in Panama is my assistant. His name is Julio Jimenez. He has great ears. Um, He's really smart, Panamanian, and he's he's, uh, almost like a kid to me. He's been around me a lot, knows the way I work, knows my system. and he helped me a lot on the record. He was very valuable. Mm. Anytime something needed to get cleaned up, because I don't do any work in the box with computers. So mm. I just farm it right to Julio. He's super smart, fast, knows what to do. So if I had some little glitch or weird fucked up something on some microphone line at some point, I'd let him put that in the box and fix it with some software. And then I just import it back in my radar and go back to work. Yeah. I'm a I'm a musician, not a tech. Um, and mm-hmm. I'm really not interested. The The more I record and the more I do things, the more convinced I am of, of analog um, recording and analog sound. I just use a digitalism is a, a mass format. But most everything I'm doing is in analog. Um,
0: if you if you're listening to a recording like that for so many hours, you know, I know it's not musical listening all the way through because you have to deal with technical stuff. Very also,
1: Very little also. musical listening.
0: But Still, how is it then afterwards to to go back and listen to it?
1: Well, okay, there's a number of things there. There's a a deep psychological component. Um, First, when I'm doing what I was just talking about, all of this uh, phase alignment, and at the end, what I've done is now I have now I have 82 channels compared to the original 82 channels. And every single microphone is clearer. And most importantly, what I've done is I've I've created space, little tiny places of space between every microphone. So I get more space, more air, more clarity. So I end up, again, 80-some channels back on the console. Everybody sounds clearer. Now everybody's at zero dB. Now I start mixing. Hmm. So basically at that point, I turn off all my extra... Violin mics and timpani mics and horn mics and all that shit and get up my symphonic mics get the quartet happening with that and then see what I need from the orchestra. Yeah um, Honestly, when you have a lot of microphones, it's kind of hard not to use them It's hard to keep them muted and turned off, but I did my best so then I just mixed and did did my best um, some of the music a lot of the live Wayne recordings have been extremely hard because Wayne will choose things that get incredibly tense, where the music just gets incredibly tense. Well, brother, let me tell you, when I'm doing that for eight hours here mixing, i sometimes I stop and scream <laughs> because the tension is so high. Yeah. I can't stand it anymore. I gotta go for a walk, get me out of this place. Yeah. Really makes me crazy and almost makes me insane.
0: Yeah.
1: You know, hour after hour of incredible tension and I don't listen softly when I'm mixing actually. Mm -hmm. I can't. My reasonings are probably kind of bullshit. I probably help use them to convince myself. Mm. Uh, I believe that in in not a perfect listening environment, my listening environment's really good, but it's not perfect. So I believe I need to overcome my room sound a bit by having more sound coming out of the speakers. I see. More direct sound to hear what's actually happening. Then I'm also a believer of mixing things. This is just my opinion. It's no more valuable than anybody else's, you know. Um, but I prefer to listen to music at a level of like it's being performed.
0: Yeah, it makes total sense. So, you know,
1: I don't want to hear class, soft classical music really loud. I don't want to hear, you know, some beautiful soft baroque music really loud. It's obnoxious. Or I don't want to hear hard rock really soft. Yeah. It's not where it's supposed to be. So, you know, within reason I try to mix almost like the music's happening in front of me. And as you mentioned earlier, earlier about my live recordings, about having more of an on the stage perspective, that's where I like hearing it the best, you know? Mm-hmm. Conductor's not in a, be- he's in a good place, you know, for a reason, you know? Yes. So I like to put the listener there. So that's basically it. It's just, I spend a massive amount of time mixing. For me, especially with Wayne, above all, my relationship with him has been so close such an incredibly close relationship with just one of the greatest musicians on the planet Earth and what a treat that is. And I would never do less than the greatest I could do. So I just would, you know, that's the best I could do. I'm sure it can be is, done better.
0: You're not only doing it for Wayne and yourself, you're also doing it for all of us, you know? You're, you're doing the oh, service,
1: thanks. you know? Uh, I, well, I, I do my best. It's It's for the music. More, more for the music even than Wayne. Yeah. I mean, I love completely. We love Wayne, and Wayne's a part of that music, you know. But man, that music is some shit, man. Absolutely. Kidding me. Um, and I sure wish we could get a lot more of that out, because there's a lot more. Oh man, I'd
0: love to hear more.
1: You know, he's working on this opera.
0: Yeah, you told me. You told me.
1: Yeah. And uh, I hope he never finishes. Yeah.
0: Makes sense.
1: I hope he never finishes.